millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello, today I'm joined by Jazz Rawlinson, who is a writing coach, speaker and author of the amazing book, which I only just finished just before, The Stories We Carry. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. So nice to be here. I'm so happy to have you on. And for those of you who can see the video that we've got going on right now, you can see that the book is behind me. Um... And I just want to say thank you so much because it's it was so beautifully written and it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. Oh, thank you. I was going to say well done for getting through it in this time because I know it is like a super thick book. So don't even worry about having only just finished it. It is definitely a bigger book. It is. And it's hard to find time, I feel, to read me for me personally. Um, yeah. But it's something that I was reading before I was going to bed and then I was finding myself so like enthralled in it, like pa- turning pages. I'm like, I'm never going to be able to sleep to this. Yes. Like, I love too- when people tell me that. I'm like, sorry for the insomnia, but I have had lots of people say, oh, I ended up staying up until 2am or um, actually when my husband read it, he stayed up until four. Like I just woke up during the night and he was, I didn't know he was reading the draft, but um, yeah, I've had lots of other people say they stayed up until two or something, which is you know, obviously as an author, that's a real honor. And that's what we always hope for when people read it is that they can't stop reading it. So, um, yeah, I'm so glad that you, you know, found yourself pulled into the story. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I'll touch on, and we'll get to introduce you as well properly, but I think one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was that it felt like you got to know you 
um, in these moments because it takes you back when you're a younger child and, you know, there were so many bits, even the references at the very beginning was like to your horse and things like that. And you can almost have these, you paint a very vivid image, which I find really as somebody who's quite neurodivergent as well, for me to have that visualization painted for me so clearly, um, I just really enjoyed it. Like I felt like I was there and I felt like I was like, you know what? We probably would have been friends, but like I would have been the weird kid that like didn't like horses. <laughs> oh, I would have been the weird kid too. I would have just been like, oh, I mean, it's kind of weird that you don't like horses, but that's all good. <laughs> no, you. I, um, I feel like, yeah, not like not liking horses, but more like I would be your friend that would like. You would have been like the Rachel character in the book who was so different to me in so many ways, but then we ended up being really good friends because we were both weirdos. I love that so much, 100%. But it's so great to have you on. Do you mind, I guess, telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and and a little bit about your book, if you don't mind? Yeah. So I'm based in Brisbane. I'm a writing coach and a resilience speaker. But um, I guess the reason that I, well, we connected and I came across, you know, Reclaim Me was because of the advocacy that, that I do, like yourself, around sexual violence and domestic violence and things like that because you know I've had that background too like as many of us have and um you know the easiest way to explain it is I grew up in a home with family violence or I should say with a perpetrator of domestic violence Um, my mother always did the best she could to try and keep things calm and stable for us because again as many women will know if you don't have anywhere else to go then you don't really you, you don't have any options um you don't really have any choices so she was always just trying to keep things as calm as possible for us um but my dad was yeah really emotionally abusive very volatile and yeah that that caused a lot of anxiety and depression in me i really remember being very seriously depressed from the age, definitely from the age of 12 if not a bit earlier than that and, you know, I was very suicidal throughout my teens because I just didn't know how long this was going to go for. Like I just never, I didn't know when it was ever going to end. And it definitely felt that way, especially when you're in school. Like, you know, it just feels like school is your whole life. So you can't see anything outside of that. You can't really picture yourself being able to be free of the things that are going on in your home. It just feels like this is the way it's always going to be. and. um yeah, that was that was my reality for a long time until my dad actually passed away when I was 18. He took his life. Um, I guess like a lot of men, he didn't have, uh, he just thought it was weak to speak out about how he was feeling. And so, you know, he sadly did not get the help that he needed. It was offered to him, but um, he was not willing or able to receive it. And um, so he made that decision and that led me to, yeah, go into a lot of um, very unhealthy and toxic relationships as a as a young woman because, once again, I just I didn't have any idea what boundaries were. Um, I didn't really have any self-worth because of the many years of emotional and mental and um, verbal abuse that I'd been through with my dad. And, yeah, that, that led me to my rock-bottom moment when I was 20, where I was um, sexually assaulted by someone that I'd known for 18 months, someone that I dated on and off. And yeah, it was, I mean, as I said, that was my rock bottom moment. And it was really, really hard to come out the other side of that. 
Um, but with my book, which, you know, I started writing last year and also published um, end of last year, that's really the story of all those things that I went through when I was younger, but then how I did come out of that rock bottom and how I was able to turn my life around and really giving that message of hope to survivors that I so desperately needed back then but didn't have um, anyone other than, you know, a couple of close friends but didn't didn't really have anyone to talk to about it because, you know, there was no social media back then. Um, I think, you know, when I went through this, social media was only just starting and none of us were really, you know, super aware of it. Um, so it's not like I could go on Instagram and find a community of people who'd been through this. And I didn't really even have words for what I'd been through for probably about 10 years because I just thought, well, this is somebody that I've dated in the past and, you know, is it really rape or is it not? And um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the shortest version I can kind of give in my story, but yeah, the reason that I wrote the stories we carry was to give hope to people who've been through what I've been through. Maybe they are still in that rock bottom moment, or maybe they're still living with a lot of the effects of the abuse that they've been through. And they're just wondering whether, you know, there is hope, whether they can come through this and have a, a happy life and a healthy life and go into healthy relationships after what they've been through, which I've, you know, I'm very happy that I've been able to do that. And so, you know, the book and my work is just about trying to be a voice for those who at the moment feel that they don't have one really. Yeah. And I think it's so profound for like two things that I found was really great. One of them I think is as well for potentially like parents or caregivers or guardians who are surrounding who are the people surrounding younger people or other people who are going through this, like support people, I guess I would say, because when we continue to share to people that things like sexual violence or family violence or domestic violence, it's, it ruins people's lives. It, it does. It's hugely damaging. But I think when you reinforce that with consistent language and it does happen to somebody around you, then the feeling that they have is that there is no hope. And I think many of us who've gone through the, reaching rock bottom stage, will say that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that you can create healing. And I think that what your book generates is a conversation or an understanding for people that even if they've not themselves gone through it, can read it and really get a meaningful potentially dialogue that they can open up or change the way that they communicate in some ways, just with some little word changes, at least to address the fact that it isn't the end of the road, you know, and that you can create positivity just through the conversations that you have. But I think as well, the validity in what you said around, especially painting the picture of like the eggshells that you were on at home and, you know, going out and, you know, realizing that you had to go home because it was getting dark and really dreading that moment. I think so many people have experience that with their home lives, where there's constant fighting, where there's constant aggression and, you know, this mental load that it takes to be at home where you should be able to unwind and relax. And I think what you've given as well in in the details of that is kind of permission for people to also really hear and read and absorb that physical violence does not have to be present for family violence and domestic violence to be incredibly harmful. 
Yeah, um, and I'm so glad that you, you know, really that really resonated with you when you read it because that was the reason that I kept so much to myself for most of my, you know, teenage years. It was I didn't tell anybody until I was 16. So by that point, this had already been going on for about six years. And, you know, I told my best friend and I told my boyfriend at the time, and even though they couldn't fix it, like it did take a bit of weight off my shoulders, but it was, it was really hard to tell anybody because I didn't actually have words because at that time, the only understanding that we really had of um, domestic violence was what you would see on TV, you know, if somebody was being beaten up, if there were bruises, punches, all those kinds of things. And if if those things weren't there, then it was like, you know, there's no validity to this feeling, like this way that I'm feeling. Um, it doesn't really make sense because there's no violence. And, you know, I'm so glad that we have the awareness that we have today, even though it's still kind of a slowly kind of a bit of a drip, 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 trickle down for a lot of people. You know, there is so much more understanding now about financial control and religious abuse and coercive control and all these things that we have much more understanding about. But yeah, when I was writing it, I was thinking, it's interesting because I was even thinking, how do I get this across to the reader? For example, if they don't have much understanding of DV or maybe they only see it as um, physical. Maybe they've only experienced the physical side of it. And yeah, it was really about trying to paint that picture of walking on eggshells just every day, just never knowing what kind of mood dad was going to be in when when I came home. And it was hard because sometimes there were periods of time for, I don't know, maybe weeks or it could have even been longer, but you know, definitely weeks where he was good and um, things like that. But yeah, it was it was just really, really hard dealing with that when you just don't know when you can't anticipate like what's going to set the person off. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you know you felt like that came through and you could see the picture being painted because that's you know so important to me for especially like for anybody um, reading who is younger, like for young teens who are, um, or older teens who are reading it as well, just to know that. Yeah, domestic violence is not always physical. A hundred percent. And it yeah, was really clear, I think, as well. And it's just something that you can kind of hear as well, the helplessness, because you don't have, like you said, that language. But even if you were to say have a friend who's going through the same thing at the same time, the education's not there to even be able to understand it fully. And, you know, think about three years ago, none of us had really heard of coercive control and understood the complexities of this. So I even think about my own personal understanding of what an abusive household or an abusive relationship might look like. And I love the fact that we continue to educate and evolve and learn as we go through. But it is, and that's so sad and isolating for so many people. And it's another reason why people even who haven't been victimized should be reading stuff like this, because it's about creating a space where people can share and talk. Yeah, and that's my hope too is, you know, just to get this information out there for anybody who doesn't doesn't have words around it or understanding around it. Um, and like you said, yeah, it was really isolating as a teen. And even when I did tell my best friend, 
Like I remember her saying, oh, we'll just, you know, um, I'm sure if your mum goes to the police and she just tells them what's happening and um, shows them like bruises and stuff, everything will be okay and you guys can get help and you can make him go away. And I was just so devastated in that moment because I was like, we don't have anything. Um, Even when he was physically abusive in some, you know, situations, which I didn't really ever see, but there was some physical violence towards my mom. But he was very in control of how he did that so that there wasn't physical signs that people would really see. Um, The bruises would certainly not be in places where it was easy for people to see them. So, yeah, it was really devastating just even to finally tell someone and then to have to try and explain, like, no, we can't just go to the police and tell them and make him go away. Like, that's all I want. But, um, yeah, many victim survivors will know it's it's just so hard. Um, it's it's so hard when it's emotional and, and mental and coercive control and all those all those other components of DV. Absolutely. And I think the other thing as well, like I'm, this is a child obviously who said this to you, mm. like a very young person, but it's like, I think. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like, you know, I completely understand like that innocent kind of response because I probably would have said exactly the same thing if, yeah, if a friend had told me, you know. Yeah. Just go to the police, you know, everything's mm. fine. Like, yeah, but that's, you know, that's what we hope now, for, like, you know. I think a lot of the times when people share stuff like this now, you know, they're having grown adults reiterate or say things to them. So, like, if somebody's experiencing this now, somebody's response might be, we'll just go to the police. Mm. And, you know, I think it's a really good point to kind of take a step back and go, if the person's already coming to you thinking through all of this stuff, they've already thought about that. Like they Mm -hmm. likely know that that's an option and it can seem very patronizing when you're trying to give people these options to move forward. It's like, just go to the police. It's like, I have already thought about that. It's really understandable because that's, I mean, as humans, we just want to help. And so we think, oh, what should I say? Okay. Well, probably just send them to the police. They'll be able to help. Um, But you're completely right. Like this is still a relevant conversation even for now because people still think, well, if you just go to the police, you'll get help. And obviously I'm not dissuading people from doing that because it is important to take that step when you feel safe to do so. But, you know, any of us who've been through any kind of violence or abuse will usually know that um, it's not you know, we may have a really positive experience, but it's it's not always the black and white kind of option that people expect where, you know, you just go to the place, you tell them your story and everything's magically going to get better. So I think it's still a relevant conversation for now. Yeah. And that's the other thing when you get into those discussions about who gets to stay in the house or property, if mm-hmm. there is violence or if the police do get involved and, you know, if the family does stay there and the perpetrator is removed, then the perpetrator knows where the family is. <laughs> Are they really safe? Like, yeah, exactly. There's so many aspects to it and it is such a complex and nuanced um, item. But do you mind me asking, you know, you said sadly that your father did end up uh, ending his life. And do you feel like there was, like you kind of said earlier that, that he didn't have the com- the emotional complexity to be able to kind of address the issues. Hmm. Do you feel like, um, that was kind of what was coming through from the 
from the beginning, like this is somebody who's also struggling. Do you mean um, in terms of like did was I able to recognise that when I was younger or just when I was writing I think, the book? I think, yeah, looking back now, do you feel like there was aspects to his behaviour that were also like, you know, whether it be mental health or mental illness mm. or um, just somebody who's not coping with the world and that might be a sub-factor of what was going on at home as well? Oh, absolutely. He definitely had some kind of undiagnosed mental illness, I would say. If you'd asked me, you know, even like 10 years ago, even five years ago, I would have probably just had no empathy really for him um, because I, I hadn't been out of heel. Um, you know, all that stuff was still really raw, so I didn't really want to talk about him at all, which is also been a big part of my journey is, you know, this is the fourth book that I've written, The Stories We Carry, the three other books before that that were part of a suicide prevention series. And even through the writing of that, um, you know, working with people who'd overcome adversities to help them tell their stories, I, I still didn't really want to talk a lot about my story. And it's only been really through through writing this latest book that I have been able to heal a lot of stuff. And so I do have I do have com- some compassion now. I do have empathy and understanding. And I think it was even just a couple of days ago, something something made me think about my dad. And I thought, I actually do feel really quite sad for him. Like I feel really sad that he wasn't able to get the help he needed because um, there is a story that I share in the book, and I only know about this because of a conversation I had with my mum while I was writing it. And actually quite towards the end, I was pretty much done. And um, she told me this story about how when we were in a safe house, which we went to for about nine months when I was 16, 17, my dad actually was getting some counselling at that time and he was starting to do a lot better. But around the time that we moved home, he went to see this counsellor with mum and um, the counsellor said to him, like, you need to understand that your your anger, your aggression it has nothing to do with your wife and it has nothing to do with your daughter. And I'd really like to work with you on this and I'd really like to talk in the next session about your childhood and what that was like. And my mum said, my dad, it was just like his face just completely turned to stone and he was just like, no, absolutely not. And the guy was like, well, I think we need to talk about what your early life was like and, you know, understand because he could obviously tell that there were things in my dad's past. Like the, obviously he had some sort of undiagnosed mental illness. I do know that from my experiences with him and conversations with my mom, but I do think that there was something a lot deeper there because any time that somebody tried to talk to him about what his early life was like, he would just clam up. And to this day, like none of us know what his childhood was really like, except for some very small details. Um, you know, I know he went through a lot of trauma as a child. His mother was um, in a in a pedestrian accident, which left her quadriplegic. And so he grew up with a mother who was um, in a wheelchair, pretty much just housebound all the time would scream and, you know, cry and um, was very, must have been really traumatic for him and other family members. But that's other than that, the only thing we know is that 
um, when he was young, he was taken to stay for some amount of time somewhere. I don't know if it was like a, a boarding facility or what it was, but he refuses, he refused to talk about it. Um, and we just had a sense that there's something, there's something that happened when he was younger that he was not willing to talk about. And yeah, he never went back to counseling after that day. He just said, no, I'm not talking about it. And that everything got worse again after that. And um, unfortunately, yeah, that led to led to him, um, you know, suiciding when I was 18 because he just believed that any help was a sign of weakness, even to take vitamins, you know, he was that extreme. He was just like, if I take vitamins, it means I'm weak. You know, obviously I need them because I'm not strong enough. So, I mean, there was so much stigma back then. Um, you know, I'm glad that we've also come a long way when it comes to men learning how to speak out about mental health struggles, but there was definitely stuff going on for him. And it does kind of make me sad that we will never know what was going on for him and that he didn't feel like he was able to get that help. Um, but I, I am able to, yeah, look at, kind of look back at that period of time and have compa- some compassion and empathy for whatever he was going through that made him feel like he just, it, yeah, just caused him to not be able to be the father and the the husband that we we really needed him to be. Yeah, and I think it's really wonderful and quite poetic in a way to see you you know, doing this as a job and a career and having this book now and speaking so openly, like that's wonderful how far it's come, but it's also a really important reflection on society changing and how we need to change that stigma because yeah, trauma and the ripple effects of trauma are so far reaching, you know, and if there is trauma or something in that past for him that he's not addressed and he's, you know, that could be one aspect to why he continued to be an abusive person within the household towards you and your mother uh, for a long time. You oh, know. for sure. He he just wasn't able to, he felt he wasn't able to change who he was. And my mum said to me, like, and this is, you know, this is like a little bit spiritual, but she said she honestly, she could see this change come over him when he would become like, you know, go from Dr. Jekyll to to Mr. Hyde, you know, that was how he described himself. And he literally said to her, like, when you, when you see Hyde, you run and hide. Um, and it was like, there was something really dark inside that he just wasn't able to overcome. Like he wasn't able to get control of it when he would slip into that, that anger, that rage, that darkness. And Mum said, like, I could literally see, she was like, it's so weird. I could see like this darkness come over him. And, you know, I know some people might be somewhat spiritual or they might not, but she was like, I could see it in him. Like, and he just could not seem to get hold of this. And yeah, I don't, I don't know what it was for him, but I definitely know that that played a part. Like he was, there were many times that he was trying really hard to change. And he just, I think, the only thing that would have made a difference was that if he had really committed to getting support and he didn't have that stigma around it and felt, you know, it's actually okay for me to get help about this and to find someone I can trust to talk to. If he had done that, you know, I do have faith that he would have been able to um, 
you know, control those those feelings and then change those feelings in time. But yeah, it, it definitely played a part. And unfortunately that's that's just part of the story is we just don't know and we just have to accept that we we will never know what his story was. Yeah. And it just again like highlights the importance of removing shame and stigma from these things. You know, men aren't supposed to be these vaults that don't show or express any emotions or are only masculine or anything like that. Like it's not helpful to them and it's not helpful to the wider community. Um, But it's also just incredible, you know, when you hear somebody like yourself talk about the history as well of family violence and to hear you after this book talking so openly and, you know, for the first time after writing this, being able to talk about him um, and really being able to break that cycle of abuse is a really tremendous and powerful thing to hear. For people who feel like maybe they're perpetuating it or that they're going to get stuck in it, you know, and or feel like they've come from an abusive household and now they're with an abusive partner, those are things that we need to open up and talk about. It's not shameful to re-enter that and to come back out, like you said. But once we remove shame and stigma from the conversations, then we actually start moving forward. And I feel like that's the whole reason I do this podcast is because being abused by somebody shouldn't be shameful. Somebody hurting you and continuing to hurt you from the young age that you were, you know, is not a shame that you should experience. It's a shame that they should experience. And whether or not they needed to address it earlier in life or could have later in life, it will never detract from what the pain and the damage that was done. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting because I was having this conversation with um, a client recently and this week again, because she's writing a book about her experiences growing up with quite a lot of abuse. You know, she grew up in the 70s. Her dad was a veteran. Her mother um, was an alcoholic and she said, I want to be truthful to the things I experienced because I don't want to diminish them. And she's like, but I also want to show the the healing that happened and I was able to repair my relationships with my mother and my father before they passed. And she said, but I did not absolve them of what they'd done. And, you know, I won't, I won't share in depth about the stories because they have stories, but she had this really powerful moment with both of her parents before they passed where she was able to talk with them about some of the things they'd been through um that helped her to understand why they were the way they were but you know one of her parents said oh he was always a good parent wasn't I and they were on their deathbed and she was like um I think you did the best you could but it was uh, um you know you weren't always a good parent and I went through a lot of pain and I think our memories are probably quite different. And it was just really beautiful to see she was able to hold space for like each of her parents in different, you know, different ways before each of them passed, not diminishing what she'd been through and not telling them, oh, it's all okay. And you were a great parent and, you know, it's all in the past, but also that she was able to find that compassion and and heal those relationships. And I think that's a really beautiful part of um, the conversation we can have when it comes to generational trauma. And, you know, everybody has to find what works for them. You know, I'm certainly not going to tell everybody that you need to go and heal the relationship with your parent, like before they pass away. Because if my dad was still here, I honestly do not know if I would, um, if he would be in my life at all. I I feel like he wouldn't be. but of course it's easy for me to say because he's not here. 
But I do think that it's important to show, as you were saying, that we can be circuit breakers in our in our families. We can be circuit breakers for that generational trauma. We can heal ourselves. And if we feel we have the capacity to have some sort of understanding or compassion for maybe what caused our parents or our abuser to be the way they were, then that's great. But, you know, I'm certainly, I'd certainly never tell everybody that they need to go out and forgive and all this kind of thing. But I think whatever helps you as the victim survivor to move forward is most important. And I have had some survivors say to me, you know, I have nothing to do with those people. I will never forgive them, but I work on healing myself. And then I've had others who've said, yeah, I did um, I did sort of have conversations and learn more about the history of my family and how my parents were raised and how they were raised and how that contributed to them being the way they were. And so I certainly can look from that frame of view with my dad, um, but at the same time, you know, not excuse that behavior. And that's what I wanted my book to to do as well, is to show the impact of abuse and how, how far those ripples of trauma can extend. But then at the same time, as I say in the book, you know, trauma does not have to be a life sentence, doesn't have to be a prison that dictates the rest of your life and holds you back from ever experiencing joy or ever going for things in your life that are important to you. It's just about holding space for where you're at and the things that you still live with while also, you know, continuing to take steps forward to be, you know, the best version of you that you can be. Absolutely. And that was really powerful the way that you just said that as well. And I think it gives permission to all sides Mm. and, It's an interesting thing, and we've spoken about it a few times on this podcast, which is just around that idea of forgiveness. And some people have some very, very strong feelings about it. Um, Me, I guess me included, but my whole mindset is whatever works for you. For me personally, though, and I I actually went to my first family therapy this week Mm. um, with my parents. I was really curious to know what your thoughts were because, like you said, yeah, some people have really strong, really strong thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting. There was one point where my dad said, um, you know, trying to fix things. I think he's a fixer and, Mm. you know, the therapist really quickly kind of called it up and was just like, it's not about fixing. Like you can't fix what's happened. And I think it was more in reference to fixing the pain and everything that I've gone through with the sexual assault and stuff. Um, but it's more like, you know, that fixing kind of is where my mind went when I thought just then about forgiveness you know, I can't, I don't hold space with forgiveness. I think that you can also acknowledge and move forward. I think you can, depending on who the person is and what the circumstances are, but when with regarding, for example, my assault or the man who stalked me, I don't forgive either of those two people because they made continuous abusive yep. decisions to hurt me and to continue to hurt me. And it wasn't a mistake or an accident that I could forgive somebody for. It was a conceded horrible thing. And whether they're, I don't know. It doesn't. And in those circumstances, if I were you, I would think, actually, I don't give an F what their background is. You know, (laughs) like it makes no, there's no excuse for that, especially when it comes to, you know, child sexual abuse or sexual abuse. I don't, I don't, yeah, have much forgiveness for that. Um, I do understand, you know, there have been conversations 
coming out more and more about what some of the backgrounds are of sexual perpetrators and that, you know, especially for child sexual offenders, they often have a history of child sexual assault as well. But I think you're completely right and I agree with you in that it's up to the individual and whatever works for them to help that person move forward is what is, you know, that's truly what's most important. Absolutely. And yeah, some people have got solace, especially I feel more religious or spiritual people. Mm. I'm an atheist and a scientist. I think it's very fact-based for me. It's not very feel-based. And I think a lot of people who have that spirituality, the feel-based comes with forgiveness and that gives them a sense of release. And I, I really acknowledge the feeling that as an atheist and somebody who's very differently minded, very a, you know, type A, um, for me, I just can't see it as something being for me and not for them. And I think that's where I kind of sit with it. I don't need to forgive you because I feel like that's for you. What I need yeah. to do is be able to accept what's happened and be able to move forward. And You need to be able to remove the shame for yourself yeah. because, you know, that's how we move forward. Um, yeah, so I completely agree with that. Yeah. And it's just, it's all an individual experience. And I, I welcome everybody else's thoughts and feelings on that. I know that it's a strong one. Um, but yeah, no, I think as well, like if you don't mind me as well, I think from that, you did say earlier that, you know, your experiences as a younger girl and then becoming a woman led to, you know, not only a sexual assault, but some quite abusive relationships what was that like for you recounting that while you were doing the book? And mm. how did it, did you feel like throughout that process, you started to make some links to the back, your background that you hadn't before? Oh, absolutely. I, it was really tough going through some of that stuff. And it was interesting because as a writing coach who works, you know, pr- predominantly on memoir books and, you know, all my clients are writing lived experience stories or at least nonfiction books that include, you know, quite a bit about their life story. I'm always giving advice to them about, you know, how to look after themselves through the writing process and things like that. And when I started the stories we carry, I was like, oh, this is going to be so fun. (laughs) Like maybe it sounds silly, but I was like, oh, I can't wait to write my own book, you know. Yes, I've done three others, but they were anthologies. And I was like, I can't wait to just write my story and really dig into it and the memories. And it's going to be, it's going to be like really interesting, really fun. And then I got, you know, maybe halfway through and I was like, yeah, I kind of need to start getting into the childhood stuff. And I realized I'd just been putting it off. I'd been writing the book kind of from the middle and then the end and came back to the beginning and was like, this is actually really hard. (laughs) Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is actually really difficult to relive because understandably this happened a long time ago so it's kind of hard to remember a lot of stuff and I'm so lucky I still have you know half a dozen journals or so from or you know probably a dozen journals um from my teens but having to go back through you know six or seven diaries and flip through them and just read about what I was experiencing and how you know how suicidal I was how much I hated life it was really tough. And then reading some of the recounts that I'd put in about conversations with my dad and his behavior, it was really hard. But what was actually surprisingly the hardest was coming to an understanding that a relationship that I'd been in when I was a teenager, not the one where I was sexually assaulted, but a different one was actually really emotionally abusive. And I just never just didn't put that together until I went through my diaries and I was writing it and reliving it because I think, you know, when we're younger, of course, our brains are still developing. We're not our our kindest, most mature selves. And so I'd always thought about this person as, well, you know, he had some tough things going on in his family. He was a bit of a jerk, but, you know, he was a teenage boy, so you know, he, he was just struggling the same way that I was to figure out life. But yeah, when I read back through the diaries and some of the examples, like I was able to see, it was just really cruel, like in quite a few, you know, different occasions over, you know, the period of time we were together, which was quite a long time. And I read these and I was like, holy shit. Like I, I never realized just how cold and cruel he he was at times. Um, you know, there was sexual coercion in there. And I remember being a teen and, you know, we went to a, uh, I was going to say something, but I won't because it kind of gives away like a bit about his identity. But, you know, we were both Christian kids. And so we had abstinence drilled into our heads all the time. So, you know, that was obviously a big thing in our kind of friendship circle. but. I remember he was, you know, really pressing me on that again at one stage. And, you know, I was like, no, I just can't, just don't want to go there. Like I'm just not ready. And it was only a couple of days later, like he broke up with me and straight away he was talking about some other girl that he had the hots for at his work. And, um, he, yeah, like we, I saw him, um, I saw, I was talking to him when I was at school one day over the phone and he was like going on about this girl and how hot she was and how he'd had these really amazing dreams about her the night before and just being so cruel and disgusting. And I had, I just had a complete, you know, breakdown at that moment. And, you know, I ended up um, taking myself down to the agricultural plot, which, you know, you would have read this part in the story and climbed up on top of a, a horse shed and was just sitting up there crying and just really wanting to 
really, to be honest, like wanting to die. Just didn't have any reason left to live. Um, that was how I felt at the at the time. And there were so many other things too, you know, other occasions where I look back on things and was like the way he spoke about me in front of other boys um, was so humiliating. And some of those things caused me to have body issues for probably, you know, 10 or more years in the future. Some of those, you know, I've only just gotten rid of in the last couple of years. So it was really, that was probably the most surprising thing was to look back at some of the relationships I'd been in and gone and realized that they were actually really emotionally abusive. I just didn't have the words again at that time as a young woman to recognize what they were, because again, there was, there was no physical violence there. So I think that was like one of the hardest things. And then obviously, you know, recounting, um, the relationship I was in where I was, um, sexually assaulted was really hard, but all in all, you know, to cut, when I came out the other side of all of that, you know, it was really, it was really healing, but I don't want to pretend that it was all easygoing because it definitely wasn't definitely had a lot to work through. Um, I was definitely doing a lot of EFT tapping at that time to help with processing the trauma. Um, but yeah, it's really tough when you go back into these memories. And that's why as authors, like it means so much when like any person who says that they got something out of the book or it was meaningful to them, it's like, oh, thank God that, thank God I didn't go through all of that for nothing, you know, because it is, it is a lot for us when we, when we put our stories to paper. Absolutely. And thank you just for sharing that so honestly as well, because I think so many, not only advocates, and I've had a few advocates really recently reach out to me that are struggling, um, people who speak about this all the time, people who are publicly advocates about feeling like they're not okay all the time or they've got a lot of stress, but they don't want to post about it or be honest about it because they feel a lot of pressure. Like if you work for a sexual violence organization or a domestic violence organization or something like that, how much pressure you feel under to not be impacted by the trauma. But I think yeah, exactly. the importance of sharing the honesty is that it gives people reality. I don't need to see an airbrushed image of what a victim survivor who's overcome trauma looks like because that person is still going to be going through different things in their life. You know, life doesn't stop throwing shit at you, you know, and I think it's just important to share those aspects, whether you're in a place where you are coming on a podcast or whether you're in a place where you're authoring a book, you know, it's okay to have those moments and to be overwhelmed and be upset and, you know, to come to these realizations. And I, I didn't start writing with the intention to write a book, but I just wanted to, for myself as well, write some of these things down too about my background and some things that happened to me in relationships. And as you were saying stuff just then about, you know, those, that relationship that made you really emotional. I was just thinking about so many things in high school and stuff that had happened that was so profoundly horrible. You kind of push to the back of your mind and it's a weird experience when you're writing about them rather than even just articulating them verbally because I feel like you're trying to paint the picture. So you're trying to make somebody yes. understand the impact that it had 
And then you're looking back on it through eyes of empathy towards that younger version of yourself as well. Like it's a really full on experience. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, I did go through really severe burnout last year. And I know now like completely that that was because of exactly what you were saying. You are recounting really difficult and challenging memories. You're also trying to paint the picture for the reader. So you've got to make it like a movie. You know, you've got to make it really play out and and you've got to really showcase the emotion. And so then that's another layer of emotion for you on top of the trauma that you're sort of recounting. And then, yeah, just just all those things. So it is um, it is a lot. But I also, you know, I also think it is so powerful for people to write their story, even if, like you were saying, even if it's just for you and you don't end up publishing it. To write your story down, you actually get to see how far you have come. Um, and this is what I love about, you know, the work that I do now with women, and most of them have a background with some sort of abuse, is that when you write your story and you, you know, you go through that hero's kind of journey, you get to see that you are not in the same place that you were. And that can be actually really difficult um to see, like when you're just living your life, you can often get caught up in, you know, I'm not doing good enough at this, or I still haven't quite worked through this, or I could be doing better in my, um, in my healing journey or this or that, or whatever it is. And it's just so amazing to see, um, what happens when a victim survivor or anybody writes their story down and, and sees like how far they have actually come and that they're so much stronger than they realized. And, you know, in most cases, they've gone on to do some pretty amazing things. Even if that's starting a family with a healthy relationship and being the parent that they didn't have growing up. And I think that's important to say, because sometimes people think, oh, there's no point sharing my story, you know, whether it's just sharing it with a friend or writing it down because I haven't gone and done anything super amazing, but, you know, not up on stages or anything like that. And it's just, yeah, I, I think you don't need to do any of that flashy stuff to be able to enjoy the benefits of writing and exploring your story because even though it will be hard, and I always recommend that if you are bringing up traumatic memories in the past that you do make sure you have support around you that you need to work through that. But at the same time, like it's so healing and um, it's just so great. like for our own personal growth to explore some of those memories and make, as you were saying earlier, make links between who we were and how who we are now and how some of those things are connected. And I just think it's important to share the good, the bad and the ugly. Like yeah, it can't always be puppies and rainbows and it can't just be recounting a story and then the end is everything's fine, like a romance novel. Like it's really important to share that. But you did mention the tapping and having a support network. When you went through like the burnout and, you know, you're trying to support other people, you've, you've got um, a family at home, like um, what was what was your process or, or how did you approach kind of making sure that you put more self-care um, and you got yourself back on track? Well, I didn't... <laughs> I think at first I really wasn't practicing what I was preaching because I was so invested in getting the book done that for a lot of time, you know, I let 
really important self-care things slip. So, excuse me, I used to go to the beach, like there's a, there a day a week that I always go to the beach and I go for a walk. And for quite a few months, like I just, I didn't even realize I wasn't doing it until my husband said, have you been doing your beach walks lately? It's like, no, I actually haven't. And, you know, I was really invested in getting the book done and I did have a deadline for it. So I kind of did, you know, suffer through, through that for the craft. But at the same time, I did recognize when I was getting into that burnout that I had to start putting some things in place. So I started going back to doing those beach walks. Um, as I said, I also do a lot of tapping. I, you know, I talk about this a lot. Everyone has different things that work for them, but I've found that EFT tapping has been really the only thing that's helped me. Like that's helped me so much more than so many other things um, in terms of shifting trauma out of my body, even things like addressing um, a lot of food intolerances that I had, which again were kind of linked to trauma responses. Um, You know, I couldn't eat eggs for years. I would just have massive like IBS reactions to that. And I started just doing a free tapping video on YouTube that was about I think food intolerances or something like that. And then I I ended up being able to eat eggs like the next day. I was like, what is this magic, you know? So I use it for all kinds of things, but I was definitely using it during that time. Um, I love watching videos if anyone wants to check it out. Um, I do a lot of Brad Yates videos. A lot of people will say um, he's kind of my YouTube dad and he definitely feels like that. He's just got such a calming presence. Um, I also do a lot of videos from Sherry Lukey. She's got a, a great channel on um, YouTube and I've actually done some personal sessions with her as well and definitely did some of those during that burnout and that was super helpful because even when I finished the book and I thought, okay, I'm good now, like everything's good, getting on with life, a lot of that emotion was still trapped in my body and I remember having this session with Sherry. And as we started talking about, you know, that relationship with the sexual assault and some things like that, I started to have, I had like a full-on panic attack. And um, I was just like, I I don't understand where this is coming from. And she was like, you've been holding on to this for, you know, so long throughout the writing process. And even though in your head, like you think, oh yeah, I'm all good. Our bodies still hold on to a lot of stuff. So I find that really helpful in getting that, getting emotion, trapped emotion out of my body. Um, but, you know, everyone's different. And I have used, you know, talk therapy in the past. Um, I did do that about 10 years after my assault because I was going through a lot of PTS symptoms and that was what I needed at that time to be able to move through that. So I think everyone's, yeah, just again, whatever works for you is best, but I definitely find doing journaling or gratitude journaling, EFT, those kinds of things, and having some sort of deep self-care. Um, so for me, that's going for that beach walk one um, once a week, as opposed to just those kind of Band-Aid fixes that people think sometimes of self-care where they're like, oh, I'm feeling really burned out or um, not feeling too good. So I'll just like have a bath or I'll like get myself some wine or like my favorite comfort food or whatever it might be. But one thing I've learned is that it's super important to have 
some form of like deep, deeply nourishing self-care that is, you know, regularly, it's a, a regular kind of restorative self-care practice for you. Because if you're just slapping the Band-Aid self-care on it, it's, um, yeah, you just, you're not really going <laughs> to be able to move through it. Absolutely. And I, um, I reflect on mine and I've said this before and people laugh at me, but it's so true because <laughs> I can't calm my mind down. There's so much going mm. on with my ADHD and I can't stop it. There's always another dialogue or another thing. And, you know, the only time I feel like that really quietens down is if I'm walking and listening to a podcast because I'm concentrating on a story, you know, and I think, you know, and I just happen to enjoy crime podcasts. So my, a bit of my self-care is literally going for an hour or two of walking a day with my dog. He's a border collie as well. So I do have to walk him a lot, (laughs) but it's being able to kind of have the moment where for a brief moment, I am focusing on something else, but it's less chaotic. And that's kind of that daily easy thing. And it's good for your health anyway, to be able to go out and do that. But I even just found a Groupon for like 70 bucks for like an hour long remedial massage and a facial. Yes. And I was you like, see, I'll go for a massage once a month as well. Yeah. Like I have, um, it's kind of changed recently, but I would have it like pretty much the same day at the end of the month. So it would be at least once a month. I knew that that was coming up and yeah, those Groupon deals, like they can be awesome. So 70 bucks, like it's like up. and a half hour facial. I'm like, I'm definitely yeah. going to do that. <laughs> like- you just got to make sure that it's, a, a really recommended place because I've gotten one of those before and um, it was like an Asian massage place and they were so like the chick was like walking on my back pretty much and I was like, oh, <laughs> she was like squashing me because I'm already quite tiny. I was like, oh, okay, now I understand why it was on a special. But, yeah. you know, they see, I love yeah, that. <laughs> snap some good, yeah, see, that would have been perfect for you. Yeah. I went to one recently in Bondi. My friend and I went, we're just like, this was after I did the live event. Um, and she was like, let's just go. We'll do some, we'll have a, a nice day out. I was like, okay. So I got a massage. She got the aromatherapy one. And I was like, I really like it hard. Like the pain yeah. is really relaxing for me. So this little tiny lady was literally like standing on top of me. And oh I was like, just laying down. I'm like, this is actually the best thing ever. <laughs> See, I like, I like a firm remedial massage. I don't mind like some pain in there, but when she was lying on my back, I was like, <laughs> I actually can't breathe. And then she was doing the facial and it was so rough. I was like, she's like at the end, like, oh, I hope you like it. I was like, Oh yes, thank you so much. <laughs> I just walked like out you, and was like, yeah. "I need a massage now to recover from that massage." <laughs> but, like when you get your yeah. nails done, and you're like they've cut like all of the insides of your fingers and they're stinging so badly, and you're like, "Thank you, everything's fine." I feel like <laughs> that's. I don't know if it's like the people pleaser in some of us, or also like a trauma response for some of us, where we just we can't say like that was shit. Um, that was terrible. You're just like, thank you. You walk out and just go, oh, that wasn't what I was hoping for. (laughs) Literally. Oh, I totally feel that. That's so funny. But it's kind of like maybe for some people that would be quite nice because it's kind of like maybe the lady laying on you is a little bit like deep pressure therapy as well. Like a Yeah. I'm sure if you are maybe slightly bigger frame than me, it would have been perfect, but I was like, oh, I can't breathe. Like, 
<laughs> just imagining this lady over. just laying on top of yeah, you. Yeah, and not saying anything. And I'm just there going, you know, don't say, don't hurt her feelings, Jazz, you know, because that's, again, coming back to the people pleaser me from being a child, like highly sensitive child. It's like, oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Here I am barely able to breathe, but I'm still like, oh, I don't want to hurt her feelings, you know. <laughs> it's just it's so, so typical of so many of us. Uh, oh, 100%. We all do it. I think you don't want to offend anybody as well, but um, yeah. I totally feel that. But I think, it, yeah, it's just important to like, you know, a lot of mothers have spoken to me about putting themselves first as well because I've made a few posts and I know I'm not a mother, so I think I still feel like I can say it. I don't have the lived experience of motherhood to to not say it, but I feel like you can't be the best for your child if you're not looking after yourself mm-hmm. and you've got to come first. Oh, it's, it's so the reason, true. It's the reason that they say put oxygen, you know, on yourself first before you support anybody else because if you run out of air, you can't help anybody. And yeah. you know, if it means getting a sitter or asking your sister or something, I don't know, getting somebody to look after the kid yeah. for a day. All or- those things can be so difficult as parents, yeah. but I know in theory um, – yeah, we do need to put ourselves first. And even if, like for us, we still don't have, um, I think we finally maybe found someone that we can use as a babysitter. But um, I just think, you know, there's always smaller things you can do too. Like you were saying, if it's to go and get a massage, there are lots of places now that are totally okay if you do need to bring your child with you, if you don't have someone you can leave them with. Um, And this was something I was actually talking about recently because the place that I had been going for like, six years just suddenly were like oh you're not allowed to bring children in and I always come I always go by myself but one occasion recently I had to bring my son for like the first time in years and I got this email that was like I'm just letting you know for future sessions children are not um permitted in for, for health and safety reasons or something and I tell you I got so upset by that and I wrote back and basically said um I understand if, you know, your policies have changed, but as a parent, like as a mother, we often struggle to get time for ourselves. And if if a woman or a parent doesn't have a family member or a childcare option where they can leave their child, that means we have to go without. That means we don't get the opportunity to do something for ourselves. And so if you changed your policy, that's fine. But I would have hoped that there would be a little bit of leniency if once in three years or something somebody brings their child with them, you know. But Because, yeah, it is so true, especially for mothers. Like we really struggle to do things for ourselves. And I've gotten a lot better at that the last couple of years and I do really do quite, you know, quite a bit for myself now. But in the past, yeah, definitely not. Like, And it was so bad to the point where I remember going on a – flight with my at that time 11 month old I was going up north for a um, mental health event that I was speaking at and I was so focused on making sure I had everything for him I packed lots of different clothes for him and you know his things that he needed and I just didn't even realize that I'd packed like two items of clothes for myself for like four days or something three days and I ended up wearing I remember being so uncomfortable. I didn't have the right clothes for that climate. Um, I wasn't comfortable in what I was wearing. I had like two things to wear. And yeah, I just had nothing for myself. I just hadn't even stopped to think like, what do I need? 
Um, so that's such a big one for parents. And you're right. Like even and even if you don't have the lived experience of being a mother, like I think sometimes parents need to hear like politely, but we need to yes. hear from somebody who maybe doesn't have kids to remind us that we do need to do things for ourselves. And um, you do matter. It doesn't mean it's know. easy, but yeah, exactly. We matter as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, it, it comes into a whole thing about like who you can leave your children with, and and you know, there's a there's yeah. a privilege in having the money to go and get a massage. But and I mean, like, yeah, and that's a big reason. Like, we still haven't had a babysitter yet, is because I was like, I don't feel comfortable leaving our son with anyone that's not family. And if you don't have family that you know can help regularly, then um, yeah, it is hard. But like you said, yeah, there's privileges, but you can always find something that you can do for yourself. Yeah. And I think it's just also not feeling guilty in that, you know, and I think mm. that comes for all of the advocates, um, all of the activists, all of the victim survivors, all of the parents. It's it's just giving yourself time and space. You cannot be there for everybody. Like you need to give yourself that oxygen. And if that oxygen is, you know, having a bath you know, having a relaxing bath, exactly. listening to something, or if it's going for a long walk or whatever it might look like, like just giving yourself the permission to brainstorm ideas is even self-care. And like, what am I going to do nice for myself? You know, chuck on Dipsy, you know, have a masturbate or something. I don't know. Just have <laughs> some fun. Like, yeah, give yourself permission to enjoy something. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just exactly. one of those things. Where it's just like, I think we need to remind other people of that. And and I think it's important to share. Can't don't don't feel shame about looking after yourself and don't feel shame about needing some bloody space. I think we'll put the links in for the videos that you're sharing is saying that you really enjoyed watching as well, especially around the tapping and stuff. Cause yeah, yeah. I definitely. just really enjoy sharing that with people as well that you know, there are so many free options to explore. If you're struggling with something, it doesn't have to be talk therapy that you go to. And that mm. can be really expensive as well. If you don't have a Medicare rebate left or if you don't have private health insurance. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, it took, me, took me 10 years um, before I did go and see a psychologist really, um, or I actually sought someone out and went through with the sessions and opened up and did all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I was, you know, I was lucky that I was able to get a mental health care plan and I didn't actually need all of the 10 sessions to get through those those PTS symptoms that I was having. But yeah, it's I mean, mental health support can be so expensive and I can't imagine what it would be like to require um that support regularly. And and that's why I think it's really helpful to look at other options that might you know, might be helpful to you. And um, yeah, I'll share with you the link to the playlist that I put together of just all free YouTube videos um, that are probably like really applicable for other survivors out there. But there's so much out there. And I think we are really lucky in a way that we live in a time where we've got all these resources because when you were younger and I was younger, like obviously we didn't have access to anything, oh, yeah. anything at all. And I remember actually posting a photo on Instagram thinking that it was just like a photo editing app. So I had all of these photos that I'd edited that's like, and it's so embarrassing. Like, remember the old Instagram, like the old one photo, the filter with, 
Yeah, the filter oh, with like the yes, the frame the border. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I forgot about that. <laughs> so embarrassing. But then I realized, like, obviously, eventually, because I was just trying to edit it to upload it to Facebook, which was cool at the time. Like, <laughs> but it's just so true. And yeah, I think just looking back on all of those different things, like how far we've come with technology, it's not always bad. I think it's primarily for me. I think wonderful, and. You know, in my experience even recently personally with I've been diagnosed with ADHD by a psychologist, so it was weeks and weeks and weeks of going to see a psychologist mm-hmm. and um because it is really expensive I actually chose to see a student psychologist. So it still costs me about $700 a lot um to go wow. through because it's weeks and weeks and weeks of assessments and then you pay like $400 for a report or something. Like it's it's very expensive and then once I've got that, I had to go back to the GP to get a referral to a psychiatrist because you can't get medication or be treated properly or get a formal, formal diagnosis unless you see a psychiatrist. So I have for the last six or so months been trying to get on a wait list. And I just got on a wait list last week, which means I will have an appointment in September. <laughs> so it is ridiculously hard it is I hear so this all much the time yeah it's so frustrating like people finally get the courage to go and see like a mental health professional and then it's like oh great they can get you in in six months it's like oh okay <laughs> well too bad if you are suicidal like it's like okay we'll get you some help in six months you know yeah uh, yeah there's this pros and cons and I know a lot of people in the mental health system wish it was better like they they hate that it's that way but um oh good on you for like sticking through the process because yeah so much money and it takes so much time as well of course but I think that you've you feel almost proud of yourself for dedicating the time you know to do that and I think that's why just having access to different options in the meantime for me is going to be great you know so going and looking at tap therapy and being like is this something that i can explore that might assist with yeah exactly being more present in the moment for meetings and things like that um what what might that look like moving forward and it's just giving you know for everybody else listening you could be curious about whether these things work for you or not or whether you enjoy them or not so just go like chuck a chuck a yeah, youtube exactly. on while you're cooking dinner. like just just try it. Like, and I always say, just be open to it, you know, because if it doesn't work, that's fine. But if you always approach everything with skepticism and like, oh, this won't work for me. Now, guess what? It probably won't because (laughs) our minds are very powerful. But I found that for me throughout, you know, my health journey and my mental health journey, most of the time, it's the things that have been like considered alternative health or something like that, that have worked best for me. Like acupuncture has been really good for me, um, uh, you know, and, you, you know, the tapping and all kinds of things. But you've just got to take a bit of an experimentation approach to it and give it a go, give it some time. If it doesn't work, try something else. Absolutely. And I just encourage people to to open that up for themselves. You know, I'm a big skeptic um, and I really do enjoy almost challenging myself you know, in in that way as well, being like, open your mind to it and see if it does work. Yeah. Like that's a really fun thing to go through. And it is also self-care. So <laughs> ticking that exactly. one off. Um, but it has been really wonderful to talk to you, Jazz, and, you know, to talk through some of what the book was about and how you came 
to writing it and bringing it all together. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to go over before we wrap up? Um, no, I think that's about it. And the only other thing is, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about writing today. So if there are any um, survivors out there who are interested in writing their memoir or writing a book, um, I do have some great free resources that you can access. I will send you the links to those. But, you know, if anybody wants to um, go to jazzrollinson.com slash author checklist, there's a really good 14-step author checklist that I've put together for anybody who wants to know what the steps are from, you know, coming out with that concept to actually publishing your book. So that's a great resource that I'll, I'll send to you. Um, and then, of course, if anybody is wanting to go further than that and you do actually want to get personal support to help you write your book, you can always reach out to me, jazzrollinson.com slash bookcoaching, um, and, you know, you'll find those links in the show notes as well. Absolutely. So we'll have the links to everything. And where can people get the book? Yeah, they can grab it from jazzrollinson.com slash the stories we carry. It is on Amazon as well if you want the ebook, but um. If you want the paperback, um, if you pop in the comments on my site, um, reclaim me, I'm happy to personally sign it and you know, write a little something in there for you. So that's just something special for, yeah, anybody who's listening to the podcast. Absolutely. And I couldn't honestly couldn't recommend it more. It is, it is a longer book, but it is, it is worth it. It's really amazing. And I think you've just added all of those extra bits of detail that like, you know, pads it out a little bit. You can yeah, tell that you're an you. experienced writer. I think it is actually bigger as well. Like it, like when you look at it, it's really chunky, but it is actually not that big. Cause what I did was I actually made the font and the spacing quite a bit bigger inside the book because, you know, as you, as you would have said, like anybody who is neurodivergent or has ADHD or anybody who is a trauma survivor and has issues with focus, um, they will know that it can be really hard to read small print or really hard to read anything that's like single spaced. So that is also why the book is bigger, but it's also not bigger, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because I actually paid more to have more spacing um, in the book to just make it more readable. Um, so that obviously padded it out as well. But from what I've heard from a lot of people, they've said, oh my gosh, like, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the extra white space and the extra spacing. Cause it just, yeah, made it apparently it makes it a lot easier to read. Yeah. I did not need to squint at all. <laughs> it wasn't oh, like awesome. reading a newspaper where you're like <laughs> trying to like get it. Yeah. No, it was, it's, it was really good. So I definitely recommend that. So um, there's a few things that we're going to chuck in the show notes for this episode. Some of them are links to different resources like your YouTube channel um, or the YouTube playlist that you created so that people can have a look at those different items. Um, and then the other is to your website where people can access that free author checklist and also access the book, which I endorse and would highly recommend to read as well. Um, Thank you. But Jazz, it's been so wonderful to have this chat. And I think for so many people, it's so cathartic to hear, you know, not only your process and, and how you've come to it, but, you know, what you've gone through and, and what it was like for you to do this. And, you know, I think it's just an incredible testimony, sorry, an incredible testament to you to kind of, uh, yeah, I think live and breathe the being a, breaker of chains, I guess, in many ways, and to break that cycle and really make it purposeful and to see you now, you know, 
changing other people's lives in such a positive way by doing all of your advocacy and speaking so much and and creating these resources for people who really desperately need them. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, I didn't even really talk much about the advocacy, but I think what's important to note as well is that you know, the stories we carry, it's not just my story. There's a lot of resources in the back as well, you know, resources to help you with how to safely share your story when you're ready to do so. And um, yeah, resources on um, creating boundaries and things like that, which are really important because, yeah, I certainly didn't just um, get to that rock bottom moment at age 20 and then just turn my life around. It was a long journey. And so being able to share with others, you know, what's what's helped me, what's helped clients of mine, things that might help them in their journey is, you know, really, um, really meaningful to me. So um, yeah, like, thank you so much for sharing. And it's been really great to, to speak with you and speak with another survivor as well. You too, Jazz. And yeah, if anybody has any questions, then please send them on through to the hello at reclaimme.com.au email, or you can contact me on the socials, which will be linked in the show notes to this episode as well. Um, and we can pass them on to Jazz or we can connect yeah, with her as well. Great. So I'll definitely pop your Instagram and everything on so people can chuck you a follow and maybe send you a DM um, and hopefully go to the website and and buy a book and, you know, get some writing um, experience as well. I'm going to go check out this checklist and see if yeah, I'm, thank you. If I've got a few things on there that maybe I should tick off. Maybe I should write a memoir. Yes, well, maybe, maybe. I look I forward to seeing. I don't know what I would call it. <laughs> well, I look forward to like hearing, yeah, any little ahas you have from it or um, yeah, what you get out of it. I just keep thinking like at work, and this is just a bit of a palate cleanser story, a really quick one. Um, I just always have this thing with my friends and my work colleagues where we go like, oh, that's your drag name. So like you have a <laughs> conversation or something and my drag name for so long was emotional baggage. <laughs> Ms. Emotional baggage. That. So that's I would like, really cool. I walked, I did a little catwalk and I walked down with like a travel suitcase down the little catwalk with me, which is really funny. But oh my I just gosh, think that's so funny. When you think about like authoring a book, I think it, you can go down a really funny pathway, I feel when you're coming up with a potential, like oh, the name of a book. Could be sure. something and so... even like my brother and I both have really dark sense of like really dry, dark sense of humor at times. And so, you know, we, I don't, you know, we, we don't talk in a lot of detail. We don't talk a lot about the things we went through when we were younger, but when I was talking to him about the book coming out and this is only quick as well, but I was saying to him, Oh, do you remember that time when, you know, we had to actually run across the paddock to go kind of hide out at our neighbor's house to like escape from dad. And he was like, oh no, not really. And I was like, do you remember that was actually your um, eighth birthday? I think it was. And he was like, no. And I was like, happy birthday. Time to run for your life. And he was just like, happy birthday. <laughs> just like talking, well, like, here's some trauma for you. And we just have like the most darker sense of humor sometimes, but that could be also really, like really quite healing when you are working through some of that, that really shitty stuff. So yeah, I think if you can have a laugh about some of that stuff, it definitely makes it a lot easier. A hundred percent. And so it, it can be painful to recount in many ways as well, but like 
sometimes things are funny because they're laughable. Like it is so yeah. ridiculous that he spent his eighth exactly. birthday running across a field. That is so, it's horrible. And, and I would say, do you remember like the time that dad got really angry and he was like yelling at mom and going like, you witch, how dare you take my children away from me? And he was just like laughing so hard. We we're like, what a dumb thing to say. Like, honestly. <laughs> really you witch like so it just helps when you can in hindsight have a laugh and just be like yeah that was really stupid like what were you thinking dad yeah a bit witchy or something like you you can make yeah. personal jokes out of those things as well yeah. and I feel like that's a part of reclaiming the power as well is it's exactly it's being able to have a laugh at different things but it's with certain people you can't just have a laugh oh yeah like no. <laughs> most people would never hear this side of me because you know, unless it's like someone I grew up with who I can joke around with, like nobody else is really going to get it. And also some people will be like, whoa, like that's a bit like you sound like you're making really light of something that's really serious. It's like, well, sometimes (laughs) you've just got to do it. You have to laugh about these things. Otherwise, like when do you move on? At what point does this not weigh you down? You know, what point can you actually, because you're not laughing about that or happy about it, but it is laughable. Those That's the only way that I can describe it to people who don't seem to get it, you know, like (laughs) it's like, you know, somebody said to me. If you've ever been around an abuser, they are usually very illogical and irrational. Yeah. You know, constantly. So... This guy um, on Hinge like sent me quite an abusive message because I said, let's make sure we're on like the same page about feminism. And he responded in this like, um, he's like, here we go. Or he said like, here's something. And he kept going on. And he had this really like very intense looking photo with very wide eyes. And my immediate response was to laugh at it. But also my joke was like, here's Johnny. Like he's a serial killer looking up. I know that I'm a feminist and I know that I need to talk about these things and you know I think people may have wanted me to deconstruct it a little bit more but I'm just like I don't have the time or care and I'm like I can just refer to him as a murderer and I think that's funny like it's not murdering isn't funny but there's there's humor in there somewhere that's respectful yeah exactly no I I definitely definitely understand that Definitely understand where you're coming from with that. <laughs> I yeah. love it. But thank you so much for joining uh, me for this podcast and thank you so much for listening to Reclaim Me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye.